verses 1 through 15. Let's uh, stand together as we read God's word. 2 Corinthians 8, beginning in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overwhelmed in the wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you may by his poverty you might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. You may be seated. And let's take a moment together to reflect on God's word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it is such an odd thing to be a sinner and to yet have the privilege of speaking to your saints about the great things that you've done and said in your holy word, Lord. Lord, we thank you so much for the gift of what you've done on the cross and in your resurrection, Lord, that you have plucked us up out of sin and death, Lord, and we thank you that you've made us your own. Lord, we pray that you would be with us now as we mull over this amazing passage in your word, Lord, that that it would penetrate our hearts, that it would stir us up to love and affection for our brothers and sisters who are in need. Lord, we pray that you would bless us in this time, Lord. Bless my mouth. May I say no more, no less than what you would have me say. May your name be glorified. Amen. It's usually at this time that we let the kindergartners and first graders go. So off to your macaroni art. And so, uh, and if you have any cell phones or beepers, 
set them on stun. So It's a tough thing to preach the Bible. Um, for a lot of reasons, just because, you know, the Bible's a hard book. It's, and not just hard in the sense of hard to understand, but sometimes, sometimes the Bible's just unreasonable. <laughs> sometimes God just says things that just seem downright unreasonable. Uh, you know, if someone strikes you on your right cheek, turn to them your left. Okay. Or love your neighbor as yourself, on a par with yourself. Okay. <laughs> or love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Or, as Paul says, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. And if your enemy is thirsty, give them something to drink. I mean, I don't know. I mean, don't things like that ever just strike you as, as that's just downright unreasonable. <laughs> that doesn't seem to square with, I just, I don't know, that just doesn't seem like what I want to do. That doesn't seem quite, or you feel like that might have been all well and good for Paul and Jesus and so forth, but, you know, I have mitigating circumstances. Apparently, it's much harder to follow Christ now than it was then. I, I don't know. Sometimes the Bible says things that just kind of strike us as strange, as long as you're paying attention. And I'd say 2 Corinthians 8 is really no exception to this. Paul says some things here that just strike us as unreasonable. And basically what the Macedonians do might strike you as, that doesn't make a lot of sense. That makes the Bible sometimes a bit difficult to talk about. But... That's what we're up to today, so here we go. I'm just going to launch us into the passage, and I'm just going to make a few observations as we go along, and then hopefully kind of give you some reasons why these things that might appear so unreasonable at the outset are really the most reasonable thing of all. Just a little context for our passage. Paul here is talking about a collection that he's taking up to give to the saints in Judea. Why is he taking up this collection? Because a famine has struck the land. You can read about this in Acts 11. In Acts 11, uh, Paul receives a prophecy from one of his fellow churchmen that there's going to be a famine that's going to strike the land and Judea is going to be hard-pressed. Now, everybody's going to be hit by this famine, but Judea is going to be particularly hard-pressed. Judea's had a rough go of things. There's always war going on in Judea. They're heavily oppressed by the Romans. And so, Paul, taking this into account, he starts going around to all the churches that he's planted, and even, even starts planting churches as he goes along, and he's taking up this collection for the relief of the saints in Judea. This is not a passage about tithing. Paul's not talking to the Corinthians about giving their 10%. He's not talking about a building program. He's not talking about even helping out with a local mercy ministry. What he's talking about here is a collection 
for hungry Christians in a different nation with a different ethnicity speaking a different language across the Mediterranean Sea. That's what he's doing here. And he's, and he's doing this throughout most of his mission in Acts, and it, and it shows up in other letters. He talks about it in Romans 15. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians. This is something that he's been up to throughout the course of his mission until his last trip to Jerusalem where he drops everything off. So, with that background, let's look at our text. Verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, this is an interesting thing that Paul says right out the gate here. He wants to talk about the grace of God that was given amongst the churches of Macedonia. Now, like I said, he's taking up a collection. Paul's talking about money. But as you go through the passage, you might notice that the word money never shows up. Paul doesn't say money. He uses another word. Grace. This is the grace of God that is being poured out amongst the Macedonians. Another thing that he says here, note, it's the grace of God poured out amongst the churches of Macedonia. It's not the grace of God poured out to the churches of Macedonia. The grace of God throughout the course, uh, the course of this passage that he's talking about is the grace of God that is going to the churches in Judea. They are the final recipients of this grace. This is God's gift, God's grace, God's sending of relief to the hungry in Judea. And that grace is being poured out amongst the Macedonians. The Macedonians are participants in the extension of God's grace to needy Christians elsewhere in the world. They're conduits, channels, vessels of God's grace through which He is pouring out His love on other believers. That's just striking. Now, that's not to say that there wasn't grace given to the Macedonians. That's true. That is absolutely true. It's only by God's grace that the sort of generosity that the Macedonians display, it's only by God's grace that that comes out of people like me and you. It takes the spirit to have the sort of love and kindness and peace. Peace with what you've got such that you're not constantly clamoring for more or self-control, the sort of self-control that allows you to look at this amazing widescreen plasma TV and say, that might be an extravagance. I don't necessarily need that. That only comes by the Spirit of God and that is grace. But particularly here, Paul's talking about the grace of God coming through the Macedonians to these other Christians. Continuing on, for in a, for in a severe test of affliction, 
their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, I mean, note those juxtapositions there. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy. That's, those are two strange things to be brought together. Severe affliction, abundant joy. Or their extreme poverty. Better yet, the word there is, is more like abysmal. It's got a water sort of feel to it. Their abysmal poverty overflows in a wealth of generosity. You've got those two water metaphors right there. Abysmal, overflowing. How did those come together? He testifies they gave according to their means. So you have here some Macedonians, they're giving, they're giving what they can. But then, then he says something more, and I testify they gave even beyond their means and of their own free will. Now what does that mean? To give beyond your means, to give beyond what you're able. Here you have these Macedonians, some are giving what they can, and some are giving more than it's probably smart to give. They're giving a bit unreasonably, if you will. They're, they're making financial moves for the furtherance of the kingdom and for the relief of their brothers and sisters who are hungry that we might look upon and say, that's, that's not wise. That's not smart. They're giving beyond their means. I mean, to give beyond what you're able, to, to pinch your finances for the sake of the kingdom, that's, you know, that's, seems, that's scary. That's a scary thing to even think about. But this is what they're doing. And what's more, they do it of their own free will. Paul says, he was, they were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected. Apparently, Paul wasn't planning on asking the Macedonians for anything. These people were poor. Paul knew this. He wasn't going to ask them to help out with this project. I mean, he's not going to try and pile upon these people all sorts of troubles and poverty and so, and so forth. He knows that they're poor and he's not going to ask them. But somehow they found out what he was up to and they begged him to help out. As Chris Austin says, it was they, not Paul, who did the begging here. They did it of their own free will. They were, they were eager to participate in the favor of releasing or relieving the saints. And because of this, they first gave themselves to the Lord, and then by the will of God to Paul and his associates. Now, that's another thing right there. Think of, this isn't, again, just about money. This is about them giving not just their money, but themselves. This is about a wholehearted, whole soul, self-abandonment to the purposes of God. And to the service of the people of God. It's about giving of 
everything that you are, which is not less but more than your finances, to the kingdom. Which means self-sacrifice in so many ways. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts this about giving. He talks about charity and uh, mere Christianity. He says, charity, giving to the poor, is an essential part of Christian morality. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say that they are too small. There ought to be things that we should like to do and cannot because our charitable expenditure excludes them. That's kind of a window into what it means to give yourself first to the Lord and then to those who are his servants and who are extending his grace for you, through you, to others. It means a submission of yourself to pinching and hampering and hindering and limiting of possibilities for your own existence that you might broaden the possibilities for those who are in your family. In the family of God. Those who are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul sees this happening amongst the Macedonians. To his surprise, he is shocked. His associates are shocked. And he's encouraged. And because he's encouraged, he sends Titus. He says, Titus, go back. You started something great with the Corinthians. They, they were eager to, to give. And God's on the move. We've seen it in Macedonia. Get back over there. Carry this letter. He Probably Titus is carrying 2 Corinthians, this letter, over to the church in Corinth. And he says in verse 7, to the Corinthians, he turns to them, he says, But as you excel in everything, in faith, speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Here's a word of encouragement from Paul to the Corinthians. Corinthians, you excel in so much. You excel in knowledge. You excel in faith. You excel in earnestness. Excel in this too. He's acknowledging Corinth is in so many ways an excellent church. It was certainly a church with problems, but there were so many ways in which Corinth excelled. And he's saying, don't be satisfied with excelling only in your specialties. Don't be a church that says, you know what, we excel in spiritual gifts and we excel in earnestness and that's really, this is what we do and we'll let the Macedonians excel in generosity and you know they'll have their thing and we'll have ours. Paul says, don't do that. Excel in that, excel in that, and excel in this also. But of course, he's not saying this as a command. He's encouraging them. He's spurring them on. As he says, I, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others 
that your love also is genuine. Now, that's an interesting thing that he says there. Um, to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. He is testing, proving the genuineness of the Corinthians' love by setting them up against the Macedonians and showing them, this is what the Macedonians are doing. See to it that your love is genuine also. He's going to say later in the passage, you guys a year ago signed up for this project. You said that you were going to help out and that you were going to give and you even started to give. Now, carry it through and basically they, they had this eagerness at the beginning. They had this sort of outpouring of love, this sort of, you know, yes, we'll give. Raise the hand. We're ready to go. And Paul's saying, okay, now let's see if that's genuine. Are you going to follow through? Are you going to move from desiring to doing? And he shows the Corinthians what's possible by setting up the Macedonians as an example. I mean, it's, it's good for us to see what's possible in the Christian life by looking to what God's doing in other people. It's, there, sometimes we get in our minds this idea that certain levels of generosity or certain levels of, of holiness or certain, certain things are just impossible. Nobody could possibly do this. And it's good for us to look to others to see what is in fact possible because we can be so easily deceived. Heights of generosity that, that were scarcely imaginable for the Corinthians are realities amongst the Macedonians. It's, it's good for us to look at other folks. It's, it's good for us as, as American Christians to, to look at, okay, on the average, you know, for every dollar given in an American church, two cents goes to missions. It's good for us to look over at Korea and see that for every dollar given there, 70 cents goes to missions. That's something we would scarcely think was possible. But it's a reality there. It's good for us to see that. And it's good for us to see that in the local church. Randy Alcorn makes the point in one of his books, the big thick one, about money. That we should hold each other accountable for our giving. We hold ourselves accountable for, for so many other things. For, for any other sin that we would have. We'll, we'll get into our small group and we'll share with one another, okay, this is really how I've failed this week. But we very rarely will share our financial information with one another. There's very rarely anybody holding us accountable for whether we're giving, how much we're giving, how little we're giving. And yes, Jesus says, let not your right hand know what your left hand is doing if you give in secret and so forth. But when you look at those passages in Matthew, he's talking about, he's talking about motive. Don't be motivated by a desire to show off your generosity. That's not the idea. It's not a matter of always keep it secret. So that's something just to think about. Would you and your accountability partners, if you have them, if you don't, find one. 
will you share your financial information? Will you show each other how much you're giving? That's something. So there we go. Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgments. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. Now, in terms of verse 9, Paul's not just setting up the Macedonians as an example in and of themselves to say look at these swell guys over here in Macedonia who are giving he's basically he's setting them up as examples of Christ likeness they like Christ became rich or became poor so that through their poverty others might be made rich and he's reminding the Corinthians remember who you serve remember who your king is you know that Christ, being rich, became poor, voluntarily lowered himself, gave of himself, so that we might become rich. And as he says, in this matter, I give my judgment. This is just what I was saying before. It benefits you to put yourself up against Christ and to put yourself up against Christ working in others. And part of that is moving from desiring, moving, moving from earnestness to action. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So, there again. He's not saying give no matter what. Give according to what you have. This is, this is a matter of doing what you can. It's not a matter of doing what you can't. If you have earnestness and you don't have any way of following through, that won't be held against you. This is a question of, do you have earnestness, do you have a desire to do something, and you have the means to do it, and you're not? It's a matter of Doing according to what you have. And Paul, this is where he gets really interesting in terms of saying something that strikes us as unreasonable. He says, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness. Your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be Fairness. Now, the word there, fairness, is isotase or isotetes in the Greek. It's the word from which you get all sorts of English iso words, like isosceles triangle. You know, a triangle where two of the angles out of three are equal. Or isometric exercise, where you have basically, you know, you push against something and your arm doesn't extend, it stays at the same length, equal length. It's, it's a word that in most other texts that don't threaten to impinge upon our pocketbooks, we would trace it or we would translate it as equality. Hence, the title of the sermon, as a matter of equality. Now, 
Fairness is a good translation, don't get me wrong. But I worry that we hear fairness and we automatically fill that in with this idea of, just this idea of a fair wage or a fair, something to the effect of, I've earned what I've got. It's fair for me to have what I have and for them to have what they have. When you say fairness, sometimes we can sort of rationalize that very easily into thinking, well, you know, if you were a Corinthian, well, if those Judeans had just prepared better for this famine, if they had just been getting themselves ready for this, then they would be in as as good a position as we are. It's probably fair that they're hungry and we're not. You could do that. Or we might be able to think that, well, I you know, I worked hard, I went to college, I went to you know, I went to night school and so forth and I pulled myself up by my bootstraps into what I am and have right now and it's fair for me to be where I am. But that doesn't seem to be what Paul's talking about. He's saying this is this is a matter of fairness or equality such that your abundance at the present time, the purpose of your abundance is to supply their need so that, if needs be, their abundance can supply your need. This sort of reciprocal taking care of one another sort of thing. It's, so I just would submit to you to think about this maybe in terms of the goal that Paul is after is a sort of family looking after one another, looking after one's own, and the recognition that it's not right for in a family one member to be exceedingly wealthy and then the other member to be destitute. Family takes care of family. And that's really what Paul's after. Um, and we shouldn't really be surprised by this. I mean, we have the example of the early church, don't we? I mean, it's right there on the front of our bulletin. Uh, I think we have Acts 2, 44 through 45. Shortly after Pentecost, how does it describe the believers in Jerusalem? And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. All of a sudden, this people, they get filled with the Holy Spirit. They hear the news of the risen Christ and just reckless abandon of getting rid of stuff to meet the needs of those who are in the community. Or 4.32, Acts 4.32-35, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, this is... I mean, this is kind of a stunning description of people doing things that might strike us as kind of unreasonable. People being gripped with the Spirit and through the Spirit a recognition of the resurrected Christ and 
pouring themselves out to meet the needs of their brothers and sisters. Now, and this isn't communism or socialism. This isn't a mandatory thing. You don't have anything like the apostles forcing upon them the, the abandonment of their right to property. These are people, this is not communism, this is radical generosity. Radical, spirit-driven generosity. I mean, note that all of this is voluntary. Hence, Paul says, I don't say this as a commandment. I say this basically as a way of proving the genuineness of your love. I mean, there's, there's always a question of how genuine your love is. You know, you think of James 2. James says, you know, if, if you see a brother who's in need and you say, well, go be fed and, and, and be clothed and, and let all be well with you, and then you don't take care of them, what good is that? That's a paraphrase, but that's what he says. So, there's this drive, it seems, within the early church and and in Paul's mind and in Paul's heart to unite the body of Christ such that there aren't those in need amongst us. We're going to eliminate that. We're going to take care of that. So now what? What does that have to do with us today? I mean, the famine in Judea is past. You know, Paul delivered his stuff. And so what does that mean for us now? Well, I mean... You heard Paul, this, this Paul, earlier on, I mean, just describing the situation in Haiti. We have brothers and sisters there who are loving the gospel and loving the Lord, and yet there's hunger and disease amongst them. There is definite need. They have clothes that they've only gotten because churches like us and so forth have donated them. Let us not forget them. Let us not forget our brothers and sisters. The fact of the matter is that God is moving south. There there are twice as many Christians today in Latin America as there are in North America. There are more Christians in Africa and Asia combined than there are in America and Europe combined. And what that means is that the church worldwide is heavily associated with poverty. When we think of the average Christian, we shouldn't envision somebody like this. Somebody with, you know, slacks and a nice shirt and a tie. And We shouldn't imagine a white guy. We should probably imagine a either Latin American or African woman about middle age, which there means mid-twenties, early thirties. That's the average Christian. Philip Jenkins in his book, The Next Christendom, points out that when we see on TV the faces of people starving in South America and in Africa, we need to remember that in all likelihood the faces that we see, we are bound to them not by a common humanity only, but also by a common faith a lot of times. There are brothers and sisters in more ways than we perhaps had realized. And I, I could pile on all the statistics about hunger worldwide and hunger in South America, hunger in Africa. And, you know, 
that's something that I would encourage you to go home and get online and look. But I don't want to do that. Africans call statistics numbers without tears. They have the effect of, that's ghastly, that's awful. Give it ten minutes. Hey, what's for lunch? And then you're out. So I'm not going to bother with that too much. But let's look at why did the Macedonians did what they do what they did? Because that's really our question. I mean, because giving of yourself beyond what you're able, selling fields and all that sort of thing to be able to meet the needs of the people in your community, that seems unreasonable. Um, what, what has to be true in us so that what was true in them can be true in us as well? And I want to suggest to you, it's right there, it's smack dab in the middle of Acts 4. It's the recognition of the resurrection. Jesus is risen. It's the recognition that the cross was not the end of the story. You know, the cross is meaningless if it's not for the empty tomb. And the empty tomb is meaningless if it wasn't for the fact that he sits on the throne. It's the recognition that new life has broken in. You know, if, if we had all day and don't worry, we don't, I would be releasing you. We would look at earlier on in 2 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians 5.17 where Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, there is new creation. The old things have passed, the new things have come. The great new heavens and new earth that Isaiah and the prophets looked forward to. The world where everything would be set right. That great future hope, Paul is saying, it's broken into the present. In Christ, in his resurrection, and in those who are in Christ. That restoration of all things has begun to break into present reality in the church. Or we look at 2 Corinthians 6.2, Isaiah 49. He, he, he talks about the, the, the great day of salvation that Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 49, about you know, the, great, the day of salvation when, when mouths will be fed and people will no longer thirst or hunger anymore. And Paul says, today is the day of salvation. That grace is at work now, signaled on the day of Easter. As kind of the starting gun, go and make disciples. It's, it's happening. It's breaking into the present now. And and I know I'm I'm 24. I'm I'm an idealistic seminary student. And you might just be looking at me and thinking, okay, fighting fighting poverty within the church, taking a realistic, long, hard look at the needs that are out there. And you're thinking that's just that's just overly optimistic and idealistic. But I want to say, like, like the Bishop Leslie Newbegin, who was a longtime missionary in India, when he was asked about fighting poverty and, and shoring up the church in other parts of the world, you know, are, are you an optimist or a pessimist about the mission of God in this respect? Leslie Newbegin shot back, I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus is risen from the dead. He is the ground of our hope. He's the ground of our mission. 
And if we just get our hearts around that, then perhaps this wouldn't seem so unreasonable. Perhaps it would be the most reasonable thing of all. To desire, to beg earnestly, to participate in God's grace to others. To desire and long for the participation in the relief of the saints. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you have conquered sin and death and the corrosive curse on this world. Lord, we thank you that in you, hope has broken forth into our world. Lord, we pray that you'd give us a eager, fervent desire to participate in and extend your grace to others. And Lord, we pray that by your grace, we would move from desiring to doing and from earnestness to action, Lord, that that we would not just wish our brothers and sisters well and then leave them destitute, but that we would seek to be your hands and your feet and your mouth in this world, giving ourselves to you. Amen.